You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, my name is Larry Lieber. And you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is part two of our look at um, the first volume of the Amazing Spider-Man Epic Collection. Uh, and this is covering a period of Spider-Man from 1960. Let's see, where did we leave off? I don't remember. Yeah, six, this is all 1964. 1964 mm. Spider-Man. Um, I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I'm Frank, your Silver Age Spider-Man co-host. And we are going to be talking um, about issue number eight onward. This is uh, a continuation, a direct continuation of our last episode that we recorded last week. And Frank... Something so very tragic happened between episodes. Do you want oh, to talk? Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I think we need to. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the passing of Stanley is obviously the the, the major event of the week, and uh, for comic book fans uh, all over the world, we've seen the the emotion that it has created all over the world, and uh, uh, from comic book fans, comic creators, and. Uh, I mean, everybody has been quite heavily touched by by the passing of Stanley, even though people were expecting it because yes, we we knew he was uh, we knew he was sick and um, and also getting older and older. But still, it's a it's a very sad moment for all of us, of course. What I've really enjoyed is seeing all of the stories that have come out because I'm friends with a lot of creators. I follow a lot of creators on Facebook mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. just hearing all of their stories and the memories. It's wonderful that we live in this age where people can share this kind of stuff when something like this happens because it's just it's so yeah. encouraging that this guy mm -hmm. lived a long life and hearing about him in a way that we don't usually hear about him is always cool. And those personal stories are what are coming out right now. And it's, it's wonderful. I remember specifically the, the, the feedback that, uh, well, what uh, James DeMatte said about Stanley. And I think it was a very emotional and uh, uh, how his impact would be felt. Uh, there were some people also from Marvel. They, they, the people from Marvel released a very nice video. And there was someone saying, there will never be a world without Stanley's creation. So that's the, the, the legacy of the man. It's very hard to describe what he's brought, uh, culturally speaking, to, to the medium. And not just this medium, but it's transcended into, uh, into movies and film. It's like how many people who are working in the film industry as storyboard artists grew up reading Stanley's mm -hmm. comics and learned se sequential storytelling through, through his stories. It's like mm. all of this stuff is, is so um, important in the way just our pop culture society works now. And, um, you know, Stan didn't invent a lot of that, but he is the one who uh, had the creativity and imagination to capture the minds of the people who then and went into these other industries and left their mark. Mm. And he was also very popular in France. Uh, you may not know that, of course. 
but we have fun, uh, a very funny comedy show which is a sort of a parody of a, of a game okay and called in France and they even released a fake you know like the Marvel thing that you see at the beginning of each movie yeah with the comic pages flipping through yeah yeah, yeah. exactly and, and they did exactly the same thing with pages of old uh, old comic books just saying thank you Stan wow nice And I didn't even know that those guys were comic book fans. So that gives you the the, the variety of people who were uh, heavily touched and uh, who who felt a lot uh, what happened. So that's um, yeah, very emotional for all of us, of course. Yeah, and and talking about these issues of Amazing Spider-Man and thinking we lost Stanley and Ditko uh, within mm, months of in each other. Same year. <clears throat> yeah, mm. it's like that's. Uh, That's a tremendous loss. And I mean, I know both of them weren't active in creating any new stuff, really. Well, actually, Steve Dicko was still creating new stuff and, and uh, releasing it on Kickstarter. But yeah, it's just uh, what, uh, what a time right now. And you couple that with mm. like Marie Severin and Gary Friedrich passed recently. And, you know, Joe Sinnott is 93. This era is quickly cl coming to a close. We're losing more and more of the Golden Age or Silver Age creators. Uh, John Romita, he's got to be up there too. Is John Romita is 88 or 89 now? Yeah, yeah. Roy Thomas is getting old as well, even though he's a bit younger than the than the other guys. But uh, most of them are now gone. Yeah, uh, it's quite moving to think of that and uh, and say that those guys who reshaped completely this industry and. Uh, drove it into something which is now pop culture all over the world. Uh, most of them are, are no longer with us. Yeah. Well, that creation are still with us, though, so that's the, that's the benefit of it. Exactly. They left behind an amazing legacy. It's just, it's fantastic that uh, we can still, we have these books on our bookshelf that we can pull mm -hmm. out and teach our kids about and 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 we'll just talk about them people will be talking about these comics forever and especially now that these they've passed like these are topics of discussion and study and mm. there will always be more podcasts <laughs> that come out um, about these comics and when podcasts stop being a thing and the next thing comes down the line they'll still be talking about spider-man comics yeah well why don't we talk about spider-man comics yeah sure what's left in this book that we're talking about today Uh, well, we stopped at uh, just before issue 8, so that leaves us up to issue 17 plus the, the annual. Okay. We still quite a lot of stuff in front of us. We do, and um, I want to try and prevent this becoming a three-parter episode, so let's, let's just uh, buckle down and get right into it. Yeah. not the best title you would imagine for <laughs> what is certainly the worst story of the entire book. It certainly is, uh, yeah. First of all, it's a 17-page story because there's the backup story with the Human Torch, which is actually worse than the main story, but <laughs> let's not get ahead of ourselves. Okay. To put it simply, um, Peter Parker uh, High School gets the visit of a new robot-like new computer and some bad guys are also involved and they sort of reprogram an 
superpositely, of course, the, 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 the computer slash robots and the robots lose. And I would say that almost 50% of the pay, uh, of the issue is dedicated to Spider-Man trying to stop, uh, these robots a bit. So it's, it's a bit of a, uh, of a goof issue. The, the, the thing that's, uh, that's really interesting there is that, uh, it involves a boxing fight between Peter Parker and Flash Thompson. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that's the, 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 the funny bit of the story. But otherwise, there's really not much to say about the story, really. There really isn't. It's such such a mild and uneventful issue, except for that boxing match, which further kind of develops the relationship between Peter and Flash. But yeah, this robot... Mm-hmm. Cool. It's kind of a nice design, very Steve Ditko-ish, but it, it really mm. does pose no real threat. It's amazing that we can, like, if you look at comics today and whenever someone creates a robot, I mean, maybe this even started with Vision, mm. but the uh, robots are so sophisticated now, and it, the most simplest of robots are more sophisticated than this. Yeah. Now, did you know that the living brain returns um, in Superior Spider-Man? No, I think I... Oh, yeah, I forgot that. Dr. Octopus, as Peter Parker, uh, creates Mm -hmm. the living brain to be his personal assistant. Oh, yeah, it's true. Yes, I remember that. Uh, Wasn't he uh, also inside the living brain afterwards when he's supposed to be dead and then he comes back? I think he is. I haven't read that far yet, so I'm not too sure, but that's cool. (laughs) <laughs> mm, I think he, yeah, I think he reuses. Uh, I think Doc Ock reuses that. Okay. Uh, I'm pretty sure someone will uh, will will say something about it on the on the Facebook or on Twitter about it. But uh, I'm almost sure that yes, it was reused later on because the computer nice. stayed in the the, the Peter Parker uh, industry uh, place. So, right. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and the backup is actually worse. You think so? I because think... I'm not. I'm not sure about oh, that. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Tell me about it. Uh, well, I don't really understand why Spider-Man decides to crush a party organized by the Torch, and then it's a six-page brawl between then <laughs> Spider-Man and uh, and the Torch, and then the Fantastic Four appears, and it ends with a sort of stalemate, and that's really all there is, I think. Well, yeah, that's very true. There's but not too much. Maybe a bit too harsh. I got this issue. If you remember in the last issue, I said that I remember the Chameleon story, a little, a small, like, Ashcan kind of yeah. comic that I got when I was trick-or-treating once, and that mm-hmm. was part of the story, and then this this Spider-Man Torch story was also in there, so we had both of the, the Fantastic Four appearances in one little, one little mini-comic, and so I have huge nostalgia like this was one of the the only <laughs> silver age stories i had read for a long time so i i quite enjoy that aspect but i understand for sure that it is pointless it's out of character mm. for well it, it might not actually be out of character for spider-man to do this in this era because peter parker himself is kind of a jerk and maybe peter yeah. parker wouldn't do it but when he's behind the mask and his confidence level is a little higher and he can get away with doing his super stuff because he's behind the mask then yeah maybe he would actually be a jerk like this mm, possibly yes uh, what I really love is that I, I uh, though the art is very good so that's for sure because the combina- I think that the combination of Kirby and uh, who's doing the, the layouts 
and Ditko inking is a very nice has a very very nice touch. Even though Spider-Man is definitely not uh, Kirby's character, mm-hmm. uh, I think still has a very good vibe and uh, some nice uh, Kirbyism uh, all through the, the issue. Yeah, it. Uh, it, it's a, quite a contrast to see this Kirby issue right in the middle of all of the Ditko artwork. Mm. Yeah, it, there's an interesting note. Uh, if you go to the table of contents, or mm-hmm. like the credit page of this epic collection, usually they list all of the pencilers and inkers together. Mm-hmm. But instead they say mm-hmm. writer Stanley, artist Steve Ditko, because he was inking his own issues. And it says underneath the, mm-hmm. the dividing line, additional pencils, Jack Kirby. Mm. And it really, it, it just kind of makes me feel like they're downplaying Kirby's contribution in this book. Because any other book, it would put pencils, uh, Steve Ditko, yeah. with Jack Kirby, if, if Jack Kirby just did a little mm. bit. And then below, would say, mm. inks Steve Ditko. And that's all you need to say, because he he inked this Jack Kirby issue, and he inked all the rest of the book. Mm. So I don't know why they decided to break True. it up like that, um, but they did. Well, I think... Um, maybe the, the it, it's more of a layout uh, because there's hardly any background on this. So I think it was something done very, very, very quickly, and uh, that maybe uh, Kirby did just some very rough layouts, and uh, and uh, and did co finish the, the 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 art because the first yeah. two, the first two pages are, are definitely in Kirby's style, uh, and but the rest. Uh, looks very rushed. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, perhaps it was. The other thing to note here is that I think you can really sense the Marvel method at work here, because I'm sure Stanley mm. was like he wrote this, so he's like, let's have a six-page fight uh, between Spider-Man and the Human Torch, and then Kirby lays it out, and then Kirby inserts a whole lot of things with Spider-Man to do with his webbing that Ditko mm-hmm. never ever does. So I can I feel yeah. like this isn't Stanley writing these things because Stanley has never done this sort of stuff with the webbing before and Stanley doesn't do it with the webbing after this to this quite this extent. I mean he mm. he knits a, a webbing bat the the use of the parachutes the, the yeah the small parachutes used for that yeah, as well. The the massive um glider that he makes mm. the webbing glider like this is stuff that uh, Lee and Ditko don't do in the issues, so I really feel like that's Kirby's influence in the way Spider-Man works here. And it's very fun. Yes. That's the fun, very fun part of the uh, of the story, the way uh, Kirby is using Spider-Man's wedding we- webbing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, let's move on to issue number nine. This one's called The Man Called mm-hmm. Electro. And we have the, another first appearance of a very popular, a very popular villain. Aunt May falls ill and needs an operation. This is the first time of many times that this is going to happen. Like every other week. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Electro, a new villain named Electro, breaks um, a bunch of criminals out of jail. And Spider-Man has to go put them all back. And I just think that one of Electro's defining moments, like he's he's kind of become more of a B-list villain over the years. But one of his most defining villains, or defining moments in all of his history, is breaking a whole bunch of bad guys out of prison, and that leads to Avengers disassembled. 
Um, yes. So that's I love that this first issue also has him breaking a whole bunch of bad guys out of jail. It's kind of like this is what he's known to do. <laughs> Mm. And he has electricity that comes out of his fingers. Um, mm. I love that he's just a blue-collar worker who stumbles into some power. Uh, and, yeah, and because he, I don't know, he's kind of a selfish person, he decides to use that for his own good. Mm. And I don't know if they do this nowadays, but... Um, and I like this aspect of him, but if you go to page 12 of this issue, uh, on page 215 in this collection, he has to rig up a special some sort of special apparatus all around him in order to channel and to harness the electricity that's pulsing through his body. And I think that's really neat because he, while he's a blue collar worker, he's also intelligent because he knows his Mm -hmm. job as an electrician. He's the best guy around. Apparently the the flashback tells him that he does things that other people can't do. So he, he has the know-how and the smarts to create up a, um, a cool electrical device that'll help him manage his powers. I think that's kind of neat. One of the things I've noticed in this issue is that something that is going to run all the time in forthcoming issues is that Peter Parker is not able to say, my aunt is ill, to people in high school. Oh, okay. Because he's always being a bit of a jerk, uh, not talking about what's wrong with him and so on and so forth. So he always leaves without speaking to anyone, etc. and so on. People are always asking, if you look at page five, for instance, the guys in, the, in high school are always wondering what's wrong with Peter and so on. And it's something that we would see even later when he goes to college and when Gwen Stacy appears. And uh, so that's something which was something that we will see regularly appearing uh, and taking place, even though he has absolutely no problem in uh, explaining to, to Betty Brandt that, uh, that his aunt is, uh, is sick. And uh, once again, we can see the importance of the character of Betty Brant in the early issues. This one, we also get a little clue as a little bit about Betty Brant's past, which is going to come to play in the next few issues. She Mm. she says here that uh, she dropped out of high school. And Mm. I always wondered when I was reading these early issues um, leading up to this one, Mm. um, because because Betty's working, like she has a career as a secretary. So doesn't that Mm. make her older than Peter Parker who is just in high school and then they're like going to go on a date so that Betty Brandt is an adult dating a high schooler didn't seem very right Mm. to me so I think that they wrote in this little bit about her being a high school dropout to place her the same Mm. age as Peter Parker so they actually are peers well well, even though it's still weird to imagine that she's 16 and working as a secretary in a newspaper. Yeah, but that back in the 60s, that's not as uncommon, I think, to hire oh. 16-year-olds mm. to do this kind of stuff. Um, mm. A lot of people went to started going to work, I think, you know, around this age. Well, I think that Flo Steinberg was not that old when she started working at the Marvel offices. So yeah, right. Yeah, you're, you're probably right. There's great art there because obviously JJJ is the fool in the issue because he's uh, claiming that uh, Electro and Spider-Man are the same person, and uh, obviously the, the the truth is released at the end of the story, and we have some great facial expressions on JJJ's face all all, all over this issue. And one last thing regarding the, the Electro's mask, uh, which I I find that later on his mask will not be that drawn the same way, and the only artist who would be in the, that vein would be Eric Larson. 
Oh yeah. And I was checking, uh, and I definitely see the connection between Eric Larson and Steve Ditko, especially on electro. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I feel like um, Eric Larson is his artwork is a good combination of Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko together. He's mm. got kind of the angular aspect of Ditko uh, of uh, Jack Kirby, but then puts in a lot of the same sort of like facial detail and and posing that that Steve Ditko does. Um, and when I did the interview with him about Spider Man, he said that he tries his hardest to be a like Jack Kirby, um, mm. but I often see more Steve Ditko in his work. Yeah, me too. And uh, obviously, we'll see that even more uh, when we try to connect the 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 return of the Sinister Six mm-hmm. yeah. when Eric Larson is 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 writing and uh, is drawing the book and uh, and the annual, which is, and there is a clear visual connection between the two. Of I'm pretty, there's no way it cannot be done on purpose. Right. So issue ten. The Enforcers. It's one of the first really criminal-oriented. I think it's the first really 100% criminal-oriented issue of the of the book. So we discover that there's new crime mob chief called the the, the big man, who is working with a, with a team of uh, of guys uh, with absolutely no powers called the Enforcers. Well, basically, that we we don't know who this big man is, and there is a new character appearing on the book at the same time. So we have this comic book uh, mandatory thing that the bad guy is obviously <laughs> the new character. Yeah, right. So that's the first time we can see that. And um, the enforcers are trying to make a fool of uh, of Spider-Man, and uh, and the big man are trying to make a fool of Spider-Man, uh, while he is trying to to support his Aunt May giving her a blood uh, transfusion um, which is going to become something very important around issue 31, 33 which will will be covered in the second volume and uh, what else? Well obviously at the end Spidey wins the day and the the big man is identified but Spider-Man has nothing to do in this this finding Uh, in the end we we start seeing there is something very interesting in the and the last page is one of my favorite page of the disco disco run with uh jjj explaining why he, he hates spider-man so much mm. while just below we have a uh, something which is mo- almost aligned to that with spider-man brooding about his situation and betty brown in the end so there's a great final page to his story which is quite jam-packed lots of things taking place and um, I love the fact that it's also a story with uh, mob guys and uh, no superpowers involved. And uh, so that's a different take on Spider-Man, but one I really, really enjoy. Yeah, and it sets the stage for the criminal underworld in the Marvel Universe. And mm-hmm. you, like you look at it now, and there are so many different crime factions between Kingpin and Hammerhead and Tombstone and Mr. Negative and the Goblin King. Like there's so many uh, different... Uh, and the enforcers, I think, are still around as well, and and this is where it all begins. Mm. It seems to, when you just read this, like it's going to be kind of just a one-off, a one-off situation, a one-off story. But then later on, it just people keep on building and building on this in the criminal underworld till it becomes um, a huge part of Spider-Man's comics and his storytelling. 
And also, uh, there is really a lot of things happening in this issue. I mean, my, my, I, I check my notes and I'm reading all the stuff I've, I've written down and there's so much happening in this issue with the fact that uh, Peter pretends to have found who the big man is, so he gets abducted, so he can help um, Betty, who has been blackmailed. There's so much stuff taking place in this issue. It's quite wordy, it's quite jam-packed, and all that happening in 20 pages. I know, right? <laughs> and yeah, he packs it in there. Oh, yeah. And sometimes Stan Lee can really pack in the words, and there are, and I think this issue has way more balloons than... Uh, any of the other issues mm. in this book, uh, especially if you look at like page ten um, and eleven, yeah. like they have, there's just a lot of uh, text and a lot 12, of, of twelve. is very busy. Uh, twelve, yeah, twelve, is, yeah, exactly that one. But but it it flows really well. Like it's captivating, and it keep because so much is going on. It's not like X Men where the reason why there's so many words is because Stan has to have every, all five of the X Men say something in every panel. Um, mm. This is different. And we really get into the mind of Peter. Um, there's a lot of yeah. thinking that he needs to do about himself and about his situation and about Aunt May, about Betty, about everything. Oh, and the other thing we didn't mention is that Betty moves to Florida in the middle of this issue. They're really yeah. they're really ramping up her story, which is going to come to a head. And I like that we've moved from the already... It's only been 10 issues, but we've moved from the single-issue storytelling to talking about multi-part um, arcs that are that are starting mm. to show up now. It's really interesting to to, to see that happening and taking shape because you can see with this issue that for Stanley and for Ditko, it becomes more and more complicated to jump back all the stuff they want to tell into one story. And we would see that it's going to evolve along the way, but uh, uh, the, the first two parters are just right after. Exactly, uh, yeah. So issue 11, it's the first two parter, and we could see that with this issue, it was almost too much, and uh, that uh, it was almost ready to be a two parter as well. Yeah. Well, let's move on to that one here. Issue 12 is called The Turning Point, featuring the return of Dr. Octopus something that fans have been wanting since he appeared in issue number three. He's finally back. Mm. And in this one, Doc Ock is now out of jail. He is hired to spring a thug called Blackie Gaxton um, out of jail. And I guess Betty's brother, Bennett, is caught up in the mess and um, ends up dying in the situation, which is quite tragic. And mm. this is where we learn all about Betty's past. And not all about her past, but about about her brother and his connections to the criminal underworld, and um, and how Doc Ock kind of takes Betty in order to control Bennett, and make him do what he what Doc Ock wants him to do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like you said, it is a two parter. Um, this is the first part, and at the end of it, um, Doctor Octopus they have a little fight on a boat, but he gets away. Um, Betty says that she blames Spider-Man for the death of her brother. And so now Peter is caught in this situation that he's caught in so many times. It's like somebody loves Peter but doesn't love Spider-Man, so now his secret is even more of a secret. He was going to tell Betty all about who he really is, but now he can't. It's a jump-back issue, and it's really it's great-looking as well. 
this is the moment when I tell you my, sto my, my small story about how I read uh, Steve Ditko's stuff in France, because initially, obviously, it was published uh, on, a, on a regular magazine, comic book size in France, initially in a pocket size magazine, you know, but then as a regular comic book size magazine. But in the late 70s and early 80s, the Ditko stuff was reprinted into something which was more of a graphic novel, you know, the, like the 80s graphic novel yep. uh, format. So we had those Ditko issues in this larger uh, and wider uh, format. And the first one I bought when I was a kid, uh, because they were quite expensive, so I couldn't afford them all the time, was the one presenting this issue. Wow. And the, f the fight on the boat is outstanding no matter where you look at it. Currently, I'm looking at it on my iPad, for instance, but no matter where you look at it, it's fantastic. But on this larger format, it's just, wow, it's mind-blowing, really. Uh, and it's one of my favorite uh, Spider-Man issues ever, I think. That's great, yeah. Wow. Yeah, mm. this is a really good one. This, this two-part story, I think, is possibly the highlight of the whole book. And one of the reasons why I like it so much is that you got a real menace, a real sense of the menace of Dr. Octopus in issue three, but he kind of steps it up here. Mm. Um, because in the first one, he was kind of a, he was a scientist and had an accident and didn't really know what to do with himself. And he tries to take over this power plant. But this is where you get a sense of Dr. Octopus, the brilliant mastermind. The, he's, he's calm and collected. He lets his arms do mm. all of the work for him. Um, he's got a plan and he, he has contingency plans and that kind of thing. The few things that don't jive with kind of where Dr. Octopus is these days but is that he's a hired thug. He's hired to break somebody out of prison. So that's mm. something that's a little different. But still, it's, it's and especially in the next issue, you will see that even a little bit more, um, the, the real threat of Dr. Octopus. No, and, uh, and uh, once again, fantastic art. New creation in, the, in this issue. Yes, yep. I forgot to mention. It's that's the right. first time you create it's the creation of the, 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 the spider traces. Yep, and this, of course, these will play a huge role in Spider-Man to come. A, a mm. convenient little plot device whenever Spider-Man needs to track somebody down. Oh, I just I attached the spider tracer to him. And then also Spider-Man um, sprains his ankle in this issue. Yeah. And this is similar to the time that he hurt his shoulder fighting the vulture in that other issue. Dicko really likes playing with this, uh, or maybe it's Stan, both of them like playing with this idea that, you know, Spider-Man, we can't have him be too powerful, so let's do something that brings him down a notch. And then let's mm. also prove that he can still do what he uh, can always do, even with a even with a disability like a sprained ankle. Mm. So issue 12, Unmasked by Dr. Octopus. So it's the... It's the combination of it's the continu sorry it's the continuation from previous issue. Uh, so Doctor Octopus is back, and Spider-Man has the flu, and Doc Ock has decided uh, to attack the, the the Daily Bugle to tease Spider-Man, uh, which work and the, so the sick, and and he also chooses to to kidnap Betty, and uh, so all that works, and Spidey and Spidey obviously appear and attack. Uh, but as he's sick, he's weakened and gets unmasked by um, by Doctor Octopus, who doesn't believe that this guy can be uh, can be Spider-Man. 
Spider-Man gets back home to rest. So obviously the identity is safe because nobody believes that Peter Parker can be beaten in two seconds by Dr. Octopus <laughs> and be Spider-Man. So yeah. that's, cl- that's clever and convenient at the same time. Then for almost for almost no reason, uh, Doc Ock decides to set Wild Animal, uh, animals free, so there's a lot, uh, there's a huge fight between Spider-Man and animals like lions and uh, and uh, giant monkeys and stuff, which is great fight and great fun. And uh, towards the end, there, there is the final fight between Doc Ock and uh, and Spider-Man, where a fire starts in a theater, and um, Doc Ock gets captured at the end, but it's not because of Spider-Man, it was more because of the smokes. So he wins the day, but at the end, it's not even because of what he's done. So it's once again of these strange victories that we see in the the early issues. I love that panel on the last page where the cops are taking Doc Ock away, and he's like, no, Spider-Man didn't beat me. Like, I just want to make this clear. Mm, It was not Spider-Man. And this is the beginning of Doc Ock's obsession with beating Spider-Man and it this mm. carries through so much and to the point where in the 80s he is afraid of Spider-Man and is like completely immobilized by Spider-Man whenever he sees him because of uh, the way Spider-Man beat him one time and and then uh, kind of coming to a head with the whole superior Spider-Man part is like yeah Sp- Doc Ock not only beat Peter Parker but he took over Spider-Man's body and is being a better Spider-Man than Spider-Man was. So mm. it's like this is this is the beginning of, of all of that right there. So it's really cool to see Doc Ock forming this side of him and the, the egomaniac that he is. And it's really it's really funny that you mentioned those uh, those issues in the in the eighties from Spectacular Spider-Man where uh, Spider-Man breaks down emotionally. Doctor Octopus yeah. saying, "You will never beat me. You will never beat me." And um, this is some really powerful stuff that was taking place in Spectacular Spider-Man by Bill Mantlo at the time. And it's one of my favorite era of the of the character. Really fantastic stuff. Then, which we hope will be collected someday. Oh, it definitely should be. We are lucky enough in France to have the equivalent of Marvel Masterworks for Spectacular Spider-Man oh, and nice. Marvel Team-Up. They are ch- much cheaper. They're like 35 bucks for 12 issues or less, much less expensive than Marvel Masterworks. Yeah, that's for sure. And, uh, I, I mean, obviously, I bought them because, well, I've been looking. They, they, they've never been reprinted before. Uh, they're only essential collections of, uh, of Spectacular Spider-Man and uh, this stuff needs to be treated like Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah. For sure. I love the artwork in the fight in oh, the yeah. fire. How mm. how hot it seems. Like Ditko does a great work with shadows and shading uh, in order to convey the brightness and the intensity of the heat. Uh, and, and it's a very dramatic fight. You get a sense of it being closed in and you know, almost claustrophobic because of the flames. Well, there's also some great art all, all, all through this issue. But oh, yeah. once again, on page uh, 17, there's a great cinematic moment when uh, Spider-Man gets down into a sort of chimney or a hole and uh, he just gets out using his webbing and uh, dragging himself down and moving up from with his webbing, uh, screaming, gangway, Doc Ock. On the next page, he literally jumps out of the hole and it's 
it's it, it, it's uh, it's a drawing lesson. Yeah, yeah, it's a great panel. It's yeah. so dynamic, so dynamic, really. And uh, it's also very strange to see how uh, the, this issue goes from the uh, sort of goofy fight with the animals into something very stronger and then quite dark in the in the theater as well. The, it's very, it's quite a change of mood all through the issue, which is also great. Mm-hmm. The device of Peter losing his powers when he's sick comes up every, um, time to time. Uh, and this is kind of the first instance of that. Mm. Although they don't do that much these days. It's kind of more of a Silver Age thing or early no, it's really a Silver Age thing. Yeah, yeah. Whenever, whenever he gets the flu, he masks himself or do something uh, crazy. I remember that in the late seventy something issues, uh, where he unmasked in front of everybody and saying, "I'm Spider-Man because he has the flu." <laughs> because when I have the flu, for instance, I stay in bed. <laughs> maybe it's, uh, it's Spider-Man's DNA gets mixed up by 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 flu or something, but. Uh, I wouldn't do that. No. <laughs> Issue number 13 is called The Menace of Mysterio. And um, like every other issue in this book, the first appearance of a major villain for Spider-Man. And it seems that Spider-Man yeah. has turned to a life of crime at the beginning of this issue. He's robbing banks, stealing money. What is up with that? Something's wrong. And I love this. This P- Peter Parker thinks that he might be doing it in his sleep. So he goes around to some psychiatrists and stuff to find out that if this is possible. Is he, is the Spider-Man persona causing him to do stuff while he's sleeping and he's not aware of it? And I love that this is like a indirect foreshadow to the what the black costume eventually does with him uh, when he gets mm. the alien costume because that actually does make him go out when he's sleeping and do stuff. Absolutely. And so we find out that there's this guy, Mysterio, who's boasting, um, I will bring Spider-Man to justice. But it turns out that Mysterio was the one posing as Spider-Man and set up the whole thing. He is a special effects um, master at for a film company and uses all of his knowledge in, in special effects to create um, illusions that help him pull off these crimes. And he, this is a fascinating villain. I love Mysterio. Mm. I always think that he, I always have a good time with his, with his stories. And especially when he appears like that, the Daredevil story that Kevin Smith did, that that was um, an mm-hmm. excellent use of Mysterio in there too. Yeah, this was a good one. I, I like this one. And there's a few scenes in here that I remember from like the old cartoon. Yes, the knockout. The, yeah, the knockout where, yeah, where Mysterio is kind of going across the, a pa- the panel. Mm. I think in the cartoon he goes across a bar, but that's a little different from what's happening in here. Mm. But still, it's very, very similar. And that one panel on page... Uh, 17 where spider-man is hitting mysterio mm-hmm. through the cloud and it's like you don't see the contact mm. because it's it's hidden by this cloud but it uh, and this cloud is kind of forming yeah. two panels the spider-man panel and the mysterio panel and i love the way that that's set up and the use of mm. the cloud in order to create the drama i guess oh same for me i i, I love this story it's just great fun uh mysterio is a great villain uh, all through, so that that and once again, there's. A, um, uh, I like the fact that uh, Peter is being clever, using a tape recorder to when uh, Mysterio is explaining that he was uh, posing as a Spider-Man and that he's not a hero and uh, yeah. he's a crook. Once again, we have a lot of time dedicated to the to pure fights 
and uh, uh, what I really enjoyed that, uh, for instance, on, pa- on page 15, when, it's, when Spider-Man is being hit inside the, the, this cloud and you, you don't see anything. And uh, as you said, well, it, it's very clever. And I think that uh, Ditko manages to create great villain with, with Sandy and at the same time has a specific visual vibe for, for, for most of them. And that's, uh, yeah. that shows you how he renews himself uh, the, the, the ending of the, of the fight of the fights on the on the movie set also is incredibly fun using the set as part of the fight and so on that's uh, there's so much creativity yes yes absolutely on page 301 in this collection which is page um, page seven Peters mm-hmm. Peter says flat out that he's dating Betty it says, uh, but since I've been dating Betty, Liz has gotten a crush on me. And I find that this happens a lot in these Stanley written Silver Age stories is that the character kind of pines after uh, the, the the woman he's with. And, you know, there's this whole drawn out kind of um, hidden romance. And then all of a sudden, like stuff starts happening and all of a sudden they're dating. But we never actually see the moment when it's like he asks her out and like, you want to you want to be my girlfriend or whatever that kind of thing is like that's is a um all of a sudden now they're they're just dating and then they don't even kiss yeah yeah we don't see they that never either. kissed I, I don't think i've ever seen uh peter parker kissing betty brand yeah <laughs> it's a very interesting relationship yeah well it's very 60s in the kind of holding hands and uh yeah. walking yeah. together as being the way of uh, of dating what i think is that Sandy is going into a very Betty and Veronica kind of thing with, with Betty and, and Liz, uh, which will take to another level with Mary Jane and, and Gwen Stacy later on. Right. Uh, but you clearly see that it was his inspiration, even visually speaking, with one being blonde and one being uh, a brunette. So that's the, the really the spirit of presenting two women which don't look the same at all, which have little in common, and so on. And uh, so that's uh, I think it's just Betty and Veronica uh, kind of thing. That's funny, yeah. And Betty and Veronica would have been huge popular at this time. They were Archie was uh, quite popular in the sixties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I could see that for sure. Yeah, and Peter Parker kind of being the everyman character, just like Archie is. Yeah. There's a lot of different connections there. And uh, Stan Goldberg colored a lot of these old issues. And he be- he went on to become a, a big Archie artist. Mm. Okay, issue 14, The Grotesque Adventure of the Green Goblin. So here we have, uh, we have another introduction of a great character. And I hadn't read this story in a long time. And I was a bit disappointed in it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because I, I don't see uh, obviously there's no reason why I would it would be there anyway but I don't see the emotional impact that Green Goblin stories have later on but that's obvious because it, it doesn't happen until the, the, the late uh, issue 38, 39 so when, when Gitko leaves but I was surprised to see how Sort of goofy this issue can be. Yeah. Uh, as the, the Green Goblin teams up with the Enforcers to uh, to create a fake movies between him, Spider-Man, and the Enforcers. 
so he proposes a deal to Spider-Man and they all end up in Hollywood. Obviously, the movie starts and it's not a movie, so the bad guys are trying to kill Spider-Man. All through the issue, uh, Betty is jealous of Peter being in Hollywood and surrounded by actresses. Uh, so that's kind of silly as well. And as the fight continues, the Hulk appears almost out of nowhere because the fight <laughs> ends up in a cave where the Hulk happens to be. Yeah. So there's a fight between the Hulk and the Enforcers and uh, the Green Goblin escapes. And we don't know who that guy can be. So that's clear that from the first issue, it was supposed to be a mystery. But once again, I don't understand the idea of the mystery uh, around the, the Green Goblin because there's like... 20 characters which have been introduced and which have a, a name in this book by then. Uh, and it's obvious that this guy cannot be one of them. So I, I never really understood in which, direct, in which uh, direction they wanted to go with that. And the overall, I think it's really a rather weak issue, uh, surprisingly, with a bit of padding and um, it, it goes on a bit too long, I think. And uh, well, I, I was really disappointed in, uh, in rereading this issue years later. Yeah, this one really is kind of two stories put together. Um, and if the yeah. Goblin wasn't, if it was the fact that Goblin was tying them together, they could be two separate stories, like, you know, the first issue of Amazing Spider-Man with, with the chameleon and the astronaut story. Because we have mm -hmm. the Hollywood movie story, and then we have the Hulk battle. And yeah, the Hulk does come out of nowhere. He didn't have his own title at the time. His his six-issue title had been cancelled, and he was not mm. yet appearing in Tales to Astonish. So he has... This is just one chapter in a narrative for the Hulk that I talk about in the another episode called... It's the Hulk, episode one, Man or Monster. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, so check that one out to hear more about the Hulk in this issue and how it fits into Hulk's greater story. But you're right about the Goblin. He is very goofy in this one. And I always thought when the in the old Spider-Man cartoon, the 67 cartoon, um, Goblin's like this. He's goofy. He's a mm -hmm. trickster. He he doesn't have huge aspirations. He just kind of wants to cause chaos and that kind of thing. And, and that's very much how he is in the 60s. And you're right. It's not until um, the Romita issues where Goblin is definitely more of a threat. Mm. It's an unassuming start. And you bring up another good point about why why is this guy's identity a secret? Because of how goofy he is, it's not like he's a threat or anything like that. Like, why mm. why does that matter? It doesn't matter at all. It'd be more interesting if um, if the goblin was like holding people ransom or like really screwing with Peter's uh, his personal life or something like that. It's like, well, who is this guy that knows Spider Man's secret identity or whatever it is? But yeah, it's mm. it's kind of silly. I'm just uh, as you said that I was just thinking that maybe it was because there is no origin, so we don't know who this guy is, how he got this kind of strength, and we don't even know if he has abilities or specific abilities or not. And I was wondering if somehow they it was not uh, Lee and Ditko's idea to to have JJJ as the Green Goblin initially. Because there's, there's the, it's the only character who, who would make sense as a hidden figure that you wouldn't uh, you, you wouldn't know about, and uh, right. even though it doesn't make any sense, even that doesn't really make sense. 
but that would be interesting. I'd like to see JJ as as a goblin. <laughs> <laughs> well, it will it will pay guys to do his dirty work in right. the future. So that's more of his approach. And Ditko does a does a great Hulk. Yeah, yeah. Unrelated, but he does really a great Hulk. And uh, I remember that I love his early. I think he drew through all three issues of the 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 out of the first six. Right. Yeah, he did the last couple, and then he also drew the first several issues of Tales to Astonish when Hulk became mm. a regular feature in that one too. And, and I love this Hulk. It's very, uh, it's in line with what Kirby was doing, but it's not that he's not a monster. He, he has a human size. He's just very uh, muscular and uh, and stuff. But he looks very angry, and I think he he draws very well the the. the the anger in the, on Hulk's face compared to, to, to Bruce Banner. So I think yeah. he does a great Hulk. I think I feel like his Hulk is more uh, it's more sad, I guess. Um, mm. He draws him more. I mean, it's it's an angry, but it's like a it's like a brooding kind of pathetic mm. angry rather than this the more over the top angry that Kirby does. And uh, once again, we can see. Uh, I, I love the producer at the end. Uh, and once again, we have some great fashion expressions drawn by Ditko, and uh, th- that is one of the the, the great things that I rediscovered uh, as I read uh, as I reread those issues. On page ten of this story, Spider-Man gets tied up in Montana's ropes, and he says, "But the one thing he didn't count on is my power of chest expansion." <laughs> <laughs> this is a this is a power that people don't use like ever at all. We think of you know his spider strength, and his spider oh. sense, and clinging to walls, but chest expansion, and that's you know that's an actual thing that spiders do. It's uh, they mm. get out of their tight spots by expanding their body or contracting their body. So mm. the the fact that he does it here is cool. I don't know if it's ever used ever again. I don't think so because it's only useful when you're tied in ropes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it could be useful, though, in the scene where he is um, buried under all of that, uh, the the wreckage Rubble. that we'll see in Volume 2. Mm-hmm. He could use mm-hmm. some chest mm-hmm. expansion there. <laughs> could have been useful, yes. Okay, issue number 15, Craven the Hunter. And uh, the issue, the episode of this podcast that I released two weeks ago was the Craven's Last Hunt. So going from that story, which is like the pinnacle of Craven's stories there, to this one, his origin was uh, quite interesting to just compare uh, the two uh, versions of the character here. In this one, Chameleon, Chameleon contacts Craven and convinces Craven to come to America to hunt the most dangerous game of all. And it's not an animal, it's a person. And it's not just a person, it's Spider-Man. And uh, and so, yeah, he does. He comes here and tries his best to hunt Spider-Man. And what strikes me with this issue is the variety, like you mentioned this before, uh, the variety of villains that we get here. They're mm. not all just kind of common crooks. Like if you read through the Ant-Man epic collection, all of those guys, are they have special costumes and kind of a goofy gimmick, but they're all just crooks. They want to rob banks and stuff. But these guys, we have... We have Doctor Octopus who just wants the best Spider-Man. We have the Craven who, or we have Craven who just wants to hunt. We have Mysterio that wants to wants fame and, and you know that kind of thing. Wants to prove himself to the world as being a, a super, like being Spider-Man and stuff. And so there's it's they're not just all petty crooks. 
And that makes this one really, really fascinating because this guy is out to kill Spider-Man, like actually kill Spider-Man, but for no reason. It's just that mm. he, he thinks he'll be an entertaining game. And that's that. I think that makes Craven frightening. Now, unfortunately, Craven doesn't really become that frightening of a character through his many appearances, but uh, I liked this issue a lot. And I like the, the Chameleon's association with Craven. Mm. Uh, I think later on they they write in this into the story that they're actually related, maybe brothers, but I can't remember if they're brothers or step brothers, brothers or something. Bro- step brothers, yes, definitely related. Yeah, yeah, but that's something which is established, I think, late in the Mark Wade's part of the you know when Spider Man was sort of rebooted after the the Mephisto thing. Towards the end, there is a small run by Mark Wade, and I think it was then. Oh, no, I definitely remember that from earlier, like in the 90s, oh. that they're brothers, I think, in the, late, in the late 90s. Maybe. But anyway, yeah, they okay, go to page 346 in this book, but that means it's page, mm-hmm. it's page 6 in this issue. In the bottom panel, Peter Parker is sulking, mm. sitting on the curb, and yeah. then there's this guy in the background that says, Move it, bub, you're block in progress. If this were a movie, that would be a Stanley cameo right there. Definitely, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It just popped out at me when I was reading that. Like, oh, yeah, there you go, Stanley. And also, uh, just one more thing here. Turn to page 343, two pages earlier, page three in this issue. Mm. Just the passage of time. This is comic book time right here. JJ says, grab your Steino book, Miss Brandt. The biggest story of the year is about to break at the pier. Uh, and, and he says, call Parker and have him meet us there with his camera. And so Betty says, sir, but of course, but who is Craven the Hunter? And in the next panel, he explains who Craven the Hunter is. Yeah. But in that amount of time, she's already called Peter and he's arrived and they've traveled to the pier and Peter's at the pier as well. And then he starts yeah. explaining who Craven the Hunter is. So it's a weird passage of time there, but... You know, it works for a comic book. Exactly, but that's not exactly what Scott McCloud explained in his book. No, (laughs) it's definitely not. (laughs) Because you're supposed to see the connection between one panel and the other. Yeah. Here it doesn't work at all. No. For me, on page four, I love the panel when Spider-Man is getting dressed as he gets into action. That's something that it codes all the time. And... I think that there's not so many people who would do it afterwards. And I think it's incredibly fun because you see that this guy is rushing into the battle, uh, literally, and, and he doesn't care about, uh, he needs to put, to finish putting his mask on and so on while he gets into the battle. So that shows the, the dynamism of Ditko's drawing. I love the front, the, the, the splash page too. I think, I think it's incredibly, dynamic yeah and, and, yeah and the credits also were were so fun back then and uh so <laughs> yeah. all that you know, uh, the the first page in itself is worth the, the the price of admission i would say so that's that's really funny and this also this issue is also uh memorable for the first mention of mrs watson niece oh yeah yeah that's right the first potential blind date that's the that's the beginning of something of a mystery that will last for thirty issues. Yeah, it's amazing that it lasted that long. Actually, I'm quite surprised. Mm. This also had at the at the end of this issue, Peter Parker is willing to just date anybody he can. 
<laughs> yeah. He's like, um, yeah, he's, he's going to go on this, this blind date with Mary Jane, but then Mary Jane has a headache, so he's out of it. So he's like, oh, good. Now I can date Betty. And old Petty, Betty doesn't want to talk to him. So oh, I'll date Liz Allen. <laughs> Just will call up anybody. Uh, but then it ends up that nobody is going to go on a date with poor Peter. We have another scene with random animals escaping, just like we saw in the Doc Ock issue, which uh, mm. seemed to be just filler, except for the fact that we, they're, they're just there to show us that Craven actually can handle his own against um, wild animals. And there is also something I noticed that, uh, yes, page 16 of the issue, it's the moment when there are two Cravens at the same time. So one of them being the the, 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 the chameleon. chameleon. Yeah. And, and you see that he's playing a sort of tambourine or... Or jungle percussion. drums, I think, or something. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I couldn't get the word. So those drum beats are so loud, penetrating, going right into my brain. An old jungle trick to confuse the enemy. And that's exactly that what is going to happen in the first six issues of the adjective-less Spider-Man title with Craven the Enter. Oh, yeah. The, the, the issues drawn by Todd McFarlane. So that's right, the beginning right there of something that you would see later on. Or That's very funny to, to see that, and it's just one panel. Yeah, I, I like that. Okay, you can take us through the monster annual here. Okay. Uh, annual one, Doc Octopus uh, has escaped from jail and he gathers a team of villains. So we have Electro, Craven, Mysterio, Sandman, and the Vulture. The Doc Octopus' plan is to have each villain attacking Spidey at the most practical location for them uh, in order to weaken Spidey. So at the end, um, the, the Doc Octopus will be able to, to, to finish Spidey. The villains are very confident in themselves because Craven says, uh, we almost beat, beat him uh, separately. So imagine what we're going to do all together. So that's the plan. And um, on top of that, he has Doc Octopus has decided to, to abduct uh, Betty and Aunt May. And then the Vulture will put an ad to literally to say to Spider-Man to go and fight him. And then each villain is going to, uh, as he gets beaten uh, by Spider-Man, is going to say where he's supposed to go next. So it's a very huge brawl between uh, between uh, Spider-Man and all these villains. It's a fantastic series of fight scenes with incredible splash pages. And the big, and it's also at the same time a hilarious story, which with the beginning of the relationship between Aunt May and Doctor Octopus, <laughs> yeah. which makes absolutely no sense at all. It's so and, funny, and, which is inc- and it's so funny. It works so well. And on top of that, at the end, we have we have great bonus features like the secret of Spider-Man, the plan of Spider-Man's home, the bugles, how his power works, his costume works, and a very fun- an incredibly funny feature also on how Lee and Dick co-create Amazing Spider-Man. So it's <laughs> yeah. overall it's it's a great it's the it's a fantastic issue. I love it. Yeah, me too. It's uh, definitely a highlight in this book and in Spider-Man in general. Mm. It, it's just fantastic. And I love the fact that he, I guess, I wonder if this is Stan doing it. Um, every major character appears so that Stan can um, sort of promote all of the other books in the line. Yeah, yeah. I forgot to mention that, yes. 
Yeah, so the, I think the only one who doesn't appear is... Did Daredevil have his title at this point? It must, it must have been really new because yes. he... I mean, Daredevil appears in the next issue of Spider-Man, so... Exactly. But he's he doesn't appear in this annual. But everybody else does. Everybody who has a title at the time. And uh, and then also the Spider-Man meets up with the X-Men and battles them, but they're robots. But hmm. Spider-Man knows all of their names and their powers. But he's never met Although the X-Men at this point. Yeah, hmm. their first meeting isn't for about five or six more months now in the pages of X-Men. Hmm. True. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed this. I like how they split it up. The method of having Spider-Man fight all one-on-one, uh, one at a hmm. time is really good because then we have kind of a natural like natural chapters in this really long book and mm. uh the only thing is like i was hoping for a big team up like they t- the the sinister six team up but they don't actually fight together yeah so that i was hoping that we could see a little bit more of them kind of taking on all of them all at taking on spider-man all at once i'm lucky enough to have read this story for the first time uh, because I don't think it was published in France or I, I can't remember when it was uh, published in France but I bought a few treasury editions back in the 90s or something like that Oh yeah. and one of them has this story so I have that in tabloid format and, and it's great looking fantastic issue and uh, the splash pages as you can imagine are very get uh, even of course even bigger and, uh, and larger than life and uh, Visually speaking, it's, I think it's one of the first time that creators have used splash pages in the middle of a story. I, I don't think it really uh, happened before, not so much. I don't think so. It, uh, mm. they, they definitely stand out, and they're all fantastic. Um, I wish that the Doc Hawk one had a little bit more color to it. Um, mm. But uh, other than that, they're, they're just great, great pictures. I think that the one by the with the vulture looks very Frank Millerish. Yeah, early Frank Miller has a lot of uh, Ditko kind of influence. The only thing which is really strange in this issue and, uh, and very silly is the power loss. The fact that yeah. uh, at some point he loses Spider Man loses Peter loses powers and you don't even understand why. Uh, it's just a plot device it seems as his origin gets retold and afterwards for no reason he loses his powers he has no clue for this time right <laughs> but that's a minor remark really. on the second page um, Doc Ock has his arms taken away from him as he gets put him back in jail and it's mm. uh, known that he has a mental link with his arms now which uh, he didn't quite have before because he was he yeah. could control them through because they they were fused to him and I think that Ditko forgot the fact that these arms were fused to Doc Ock because if you lo- don't look at the text and you just mm. look at what Ditko drew, you know, he, the guards are taking away Dr. Octopus's arms in a, and it looks like they were just kind of wrapped around him. And his, you can see his chest is exposed and there's no sort of sign that they were fused to his body. And then Stan Lee sees the art and is like, no, wait a minute, they refused to him. So he has to create some sort of text that explains this. And it says, in state prison, a team of specialists have finally found a way to remove the four extra mechanical arms which had become attached to Dr. Octopus after a freak accident. So just to to sort of reconcile that, but uh, that's not exactly what the picture looks like. 
And if they were to find a way to remove the arms, they wouldn't look still perfect like that. They'd probably have to cut away and that kind of thing. But mm. so I think that was a little a little sense of Stan trying to correct uh, some continuity issues there. It's the, the, I think that the, the the Sinister Six works so well that I I'm really surprised that no one has ever thought of. Uh, recreating that team until uh, David McClane in the in the late 80s or early 90s. It was with Eric Larson then, and uh, they they hadn't uh, teamed up since uh, since that annual. Yeah, that was very surprising to me as well. Like 25 years passed, um, or 20 years mm. passed, and that and yeah, the Sinister Six didn't make an appearance. And then since then, the Sinister Six have been in like multiple multiple times they've been reused if you want to hear us um, Adam and I talk about the Eric Larson David Michelinie Sinister Six story that we've been mentioning Mm. several times um, in the episode called Return of the Sinister Six so you can hear us talk about Mm. that one in in that episode and that's that that was a great episode I remember it very fondly and uh, those issues are almost at the same level as this annual for me. And uh, I think that uh, Marvel should create a sort of uh, trade paperback gathering all those issues together. It would be a great fun. It would be great fun if they hadn't, uh, haven't done it yet. Like the old Sinister Six and the new Sinister Six? Yeah. Um, that there actually is something solicited just recently that collects oh, exactly that. Really? Yep. Mm, yep. That's, um, a good, that, that's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Good idea, Frank. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love the cover gallery, or sorry, the villain gallery that's in here where it outlines all of the different villains, including some of the ones who would never make the list these days, like the Living Brain and the Tinkerer. Um, Mm -hmm. Fantastic Four did a similar thing in the first couple of their annuals as well. They have their own villain galleries there too. And I think that's really... I think those are the only ones who do that unless X-Men does it but I can't remember yeah. for some reason I think that maybe Iron Man oh, okay yeah I'll have to check that something like that and it's the the, the, the beginning of the the, the the Marvel presenting the uh, characters like this like they will do in the in the the handbook uh, I, I, I can't the handbook the official handbook to the Marvel Universe mm. that's uh, that, that's a nice addition yeah, and also the, the the bonus features that they will always use in the, in the annuals are are always fun. I think. Yeah, they've kind of stopped doing that these days, but these old sixties mm. ones are fantastic. Yeah, and you mentioned the 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 fun one of how Stanley and Steve Ditko create Spider Man. <laughs> I can Steve Ditko's kind of grumpiness in this is kind of just how I Ditko being, I guess. I don't know if it's far mm. off from the truth, truth or not, but <laughs> just uh, it's kind of like Stan wakes up, has an idea, Steve Ditko does all the work, and then Stan puts some mm. words to it. <laughs> what is what is really great is the the, the three pa- the three or four panels on the last page of uh, this feature when it's showing how he's drawing Spider Man and how uh, all this gets created. I think it's fascinating. Yeah, it's really cool. I love, uh, I love that. It shows the yeah, the different the different steps in his penciling and his inking. Yeah, it's a nice addition. Mm. I like it. This was a fantastic annual. There are not too annual too many annuals where I'll say I like the whole thing from start to finish, but this is definitely one of them. 
Well, I think that uh, up until the late 80s, you can enjoy most of them, especially for Spider-Man. Uh, I think that there are not so many bad annuals in the 60s and the 70s. Uh, and even up to the, the 80s, I mean, I remember that the, the second Captain Marvel was introduced in a Spider-Man annual. So oh, yeah. Mm, so there are very, very good things in the, in, uh, in those days. Uh, I remember a great Dr. Octopus annual with between Amazing Spider-Man and I think Peter Parker from maybe 82 or something like that, or even before. So there have always been some good things. It was until it was not until the the nineties that uh, they got into those um, all the crossovers, cross, yeah, the crossovers, yeah, and, uh, and ha- having new artists as tryouts on annuals as well. So, but honestly, there were very, some very very good things then. Well, we're nearing the end. We have two more issues to go, so let's move on to number sixteen here, called "Duel with Daredevil." Um, in this one, we see that we meet the Circus of Crime. And the Circus of Crime is a team that first appeared in the pages of Hulk, um, but not, but mainly just the Ringmaster. And in the the Hulk issue was, the Circus of Crime was kind of made up of just random circus people. But we see a lot of the the regular people who have become long-standing members of the Circus of Crime, like the the Gambino brothers and the Human Cannonball. Um, those those guys are ones that are mainstays so the circus comes to town and of course we know that that means that something's going to happen because the ringmaster has a an evil looking mustache so he can't be he can't be trusted Mm. Uh, he hypnotizes the entire crowd but that means that uh, the person in the audience who can't see doesn't get hypnotized and that happens to be matt murdoch the daredevil and daredevil is a very new character at this point He's still wearing his yellow costume because he ditches the yellow costume in, into his classic red costume in issue seven of Daredevil. So we know that mm-hmm. this story takes place before that. So I and I think that he's here to help promote the new book. Um, Stanley put mm-hmm. him in here. It's like let's sell some more Daredevil comics by putting Daredevil in a Spider-Man comic and get get the kids to uh, jump over to the other to our other book as well. And so together. Or no, Spider-Man becomes hypnotized and has to follow the commands of of the Ringmaster, who tells him to go after Daredevil. So they have a fight, and in the end, everybody breaks free of the hypnosis, and the circus of crime gets taken down, as you would mm-hmm. expect, of course. This is the first real guest star for Spider-Man in a Spider-Man book. Um, I don't know if you call the Fantastic Four a guest appearance. I think it's more of a cameo. But this one's an actual guest appearance because he actually teams up to to save the day. Yeah, because the Daredevil is the one who releases uh, Spider-Man from his hypnotic uh, spell. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And I like I like Steve Ditko's Daredevil. He does a good job with uh, just the acrobatics and that aspect of Daredevil. Does the costume mm. well? Yeah, this was a fun one. It's not one of the standout issues, but it's fun. No, and once again, visually speaking, the fact that uh, he's using circus artists allows Ditko to do some very, very funny things with uh, uh, the when, at the moment when uh, uh, Spider-Man is fighting this is a very strong man with the weight and then jumping with the the, the acrobats and uh, yeah. and all that. I, I yeah, think, yeah. It, visually speaking, it's a, once again a great issue. Uh, because it plays very well on the dynamics and the visual dynamics that Ditko can create. 
But beyond that, there's not so much to say about it. And, uh, and just creating that the ringmaster is quite a lame feeling. <laughs> yeah. Yep, yep. He pops up every now and again, and he's never usually that big of a threat. So issue 17, the return of the Green Goblin, which is the title that says it all. So yeah, as you mentioned before, uh, at this time, the, the Green Goblin is still a very still a mystery villain, obviously, and still a bit of a silly character. So in this issue, Flash Thompson is creating a sort of Friday fan group. Uh, he gathers everybody and hopes that uh, Spider-Man will find out about it and join. And obviously, Peter, pa- Peter Parker decides to, to join the, the party. But so does the Torch and the Green Goblin, uh, who decides to crash the party. So the, the, the fight between the uh, the Green Goblin and uh, and Spider-Man is a very strange uh, is a very strange one because all through the fight um, Spider-Man has to change back into Peter Parker to do other things like appear among everybody uh, and then he finds out that he, it, so he goes back and forth between Spider-Man and Peter Parker all through the issue uh, and at the end of the story he finds out that his aunt has uh, a new stroke and so he has to leave uh, and be seen as a coward in order to go and visit uh, to visit Aunt May uh, while he leaves everybody being uh, surprised and astonished that the one who was supposed to be the hero of the day and who's the, uh, the hero of Flash Thompson uh, lives like a coward yeah the way they ramp that up it's like it's classic 1930s screwball comedy where the guy has Mm. to be in multiple places at once and he tries to juggle all of that and it's just like yeah so he's got to be spider-man fighting the green goblin it's like oh no betty's upset because i disappeared i i need to be i need to to make an appearance as peter parker no i gotta go back to being spider-man oh liz is figuring out my secret identity i have to make an appearance as spider-man so she doesn't uh, as a as peter parker so she doesn't suspect a thing oh i gotta go back to being spider-man oh aunt may's in the hospital i have to go see her oh i have to be back being spider-man to fight the green goblin and it's just this back and forth it's actually kind of a really funny situation and uh throughout the thing it's and again very breakneck speed it's fast paced there's so much mm. going on and uh I, th- I like this one this one i think i like this appearance of green goblin better than the last appearance mm, me too so that was good um nice to see human torch back again and this is a first appearance or first mention of a spider-man fan club and this is something mm-hmm. that i've mentioned in other um, in other episodes but uh, at this point these characters were becoming so popular that fan clubs actually were starting up and Stan mm-hmm. was doing everything he could to help foster that and promote fan clubs he really wanted people to have fan clubs and he would print in the in the letters pages he would print the addresses of people who had fan clubs so that you could join up with people in your in your area to start your own fan club and you have characters um appear talking to their fan clubs in the books you see this in ant-man and you see it in thor and now you see it in spider-man and fantastic four that the fan clubs mm-hmm. were actually something that he wrote into the stories so stanley was a great marketing guy and that was one of his really good marketing fan gimmicks club. there fan clubs are fan club is the reason why the, the Avengers got together in the first place. Right, yes, that's right. 
<laughs> so that's how, he, and that's, uh, I think that's one of the main appeals of his books by then. It's also the fact that uh, he wrote teenagers who behave like teenagers yeah. uh, of the day. And uh, so that, that worked really well. So you definitely imagine that having someone like Flash Thompson saying, okay, I'm going to create this fan club of Spider-Man because it's the best. I mean, it, it, it works. It makes sense. And yes, the comedy aspect is something, once again, which is surprising in, uh, in a Green Goblin issue because that would go away, I think, very quickly. But uh, the fact that you see Peter running in his costume with his Spider-Man socks still on or later when he leaves uh, the place to go back, to go and visit Aunt May in the hospital, uh, yeah. undressing as he, as he runs on the rooftop saying, I don't care if people find out who I am. I need to be there. I have to be there. And once again, it's a fun issue, but the last page always brings, in most of those issues that we've, we've mentioned, uh, we get to the point where we say, oh, this is the price I have to pay for being Spider-Man. And definitely then, uh, that's the payoff because he really understands that he, he has lost everything. Uh, between that and the next issue, we would see that he loses a lot of things because of the fact that he is Spider-Man and he has to deal with being a superhero and a regular person at the same time, uh, which is something you would never have seen uh, in the DC universe at the time or even later. And that explains why this character was so popular back then, I think, uh, because you can definitely feel his struggle of being a regular teenager, a superhero, and uh, sometimes being there for doing to do good things, but at the end, losing the fight sometimes, or uh, being the unpopular guy and being an unpopular superhero on top of it. I think that's very well written. And in this issue, we clearly see that, I think. Yeah, you said it. This is a great example of what's, what made Spider-Man uh, so great and so enduring of a character all these years. Mm. Kind of a sad note to end this book on. But yeah. uh, but they did it, and it's a little bit of a cliffhanger. What's going to happen to Aunt May? Is she going to live? I'm not sure. Yes, I think she <laughs> will. she pull through? Yeah. Well, the payoff is in the is in the next volume. So, well, we will have to sit tight and wait for the next episode to find out. Mm-hmm. Um, just to round things up, this uh, this epic collection has a lot of original art from Amazing Fantasy. And uh, with some great notes, this is uh, this is one of the best uses of the original art in all of the epic collections because it's it's annotated with little notes about specifically about the artwork and what to look for and uh, and different different things about the the notes in the margins or the whiteout and what that means and so like for example, on the first page of Amazing Fantasy, when you see uh, a group of teenagers talking. Flash Thompson has the line, you're kidding, that bookworm wouldn't know a cha-cha from a waltz. And mm-hmm. it, it points out, look at the 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 whiteout on Liz Allen's face. Uh, consensus exists that Lee had artist Al Hartley, known for drawing attractive women, give a more conventional look to the book's female centerpiece. And there's notes like that for every page of Amazing Fantasy number 15. All of the artwork is here. All, all 11 pages. 
and it's uh, it's really really good. It's a great bonus feature. Uh, there's also an unused cover of Amazing Fantasy number fifteen that was drawn by Steve Ditko that was never used, and mm-hmm. uh, and an unused issue number ten with the Enforcers, uh, and also uh, an issue of Spider or the a cover of Spider Man eleven that has a different Doctor Octopus face on it. The, his face was redone. Um, and as well, some house ads uh, and a page from Spider-Man number 10 and um, a little directory of who's who in the Marvel bullpen. You get to see all of these guys mm-hmm. who made up the the bullpen at the time. So you get to see what they look like in the 60s. And I think that only Larry Lieber is still with us today out of the people in this picture. Mm, I think so, yes. Yeah, I think everybody mm-hmm. else passed. I'm not sure about Nancy Murphy or Debbie Ackerman. But I'm pretty sure that everybody else has passed away, except for Larry. Mm. So there you go. That's the first volume of Spider-Man. What a doozy. This is like issue after issue of great stuff. Um, I had a question on Twitter that I want to ask you. Chris asks, what do you think are the best issues in this volume and the worst? He says, I love Amazing Fantasy number 15 and Spider-Man 3, 4, 6, and 13. And he says, not a huge fan of 1, 8, and 10. What would you say? What are your favorite issues in this book? The, the two-parter with Doc Ock is my favorite stuff. Yeah. Well, with the annual, I think. Uh, worst issue, obviously, is issue 8 and possibly issue 14. And then I have a soft spot for Amazing Fantasy 15, but who doesn't? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. Um, I agree with you. I like all three of the Doc Ock issues. Um, I also like the the lizard issue. I think is really great, mm. and the annual, yeah, and and I think we can definitely say that issue eight is the low point of the book for sure. Yeah, but uh, overall, it's one of the very good uh, bang for the buck that you can get for for for, for an epic collection. It's uh, it's a fantastic ride. Well. Uh, I'm based on this, so I'm going. <laughs> I can say that the the the, the next eight or uh, eight or ten uh, ones would be as, almost as great. So we've been talking about Spider-Man a lot on this podcast lately. So I think we're going to give Spider-Man a break for a little while, and uh, and move into something else. So I think why don't you and I tackle New Mutants? Like we we did the first volume of the first episode of that recently and so I think we should pick up mm-hmm. and either do um, well we'll probably have to do volume 6 Curse of the Valkyries because volume 2 won't be out for a little while still so why don't we plan on that yeah, right. some more new mutants yeah, sure. that's something for everybody to look forward to absolutely that does it for our episode today uh, thanks for joining me once again Frank and we will see everybody on the next episode take care everyone bye bye bye